Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Here I learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. Greg French might best be known as the man who wrote the first accurate and comprehensive Tasmanian guidebook, but there is much more to Greg than just the man behind the maps. Greg is the author of four published books with two more on the way. Now the Tasmanian local is bringing his extensive knowledge about fish biology and hatcheries into a book about an area of concern in Yellowstone National Park. I met with Greg in Tasmania to hear his thoughts on tourism, advocacy, writing, honesty, and stocking fish. As Greg always does, he left my head spinning and yearning to learn more. I'm not embarrassed about anything I say. Good. Yeah. Nor should you be. No. So let's start off. Let's start off really simple. I just want to get to know a little bit more about who Greg French is, because I really don't know that much about you. Okay. Well, in the fishing world, I started off when I was a teenager, going out to lots of places in backcountry Tasmania, where none of the trout fishing had been documented. And at the end of one trip, when I was at Adelaide, and I'd been fishing there for two days and then a fellow walked over the hill and told me there were no fish in it but that there were fish in the next lake down the hill Lake Meston um, I said why hasn't anyone written about this and a couple of my mates with me said well before you complain you haven't done it either <laughs> yeah. and at that point you think well you know, maybe there is an avenue to actually explore and write about all this stuff and I guess you know, when I was a little kid, I used to collect stamps and stuff like that. How old are you now? I'm 53. Okay. Yeah. 
but back then, you know, you, if you had that collecting thing, and so you wander around in Tasmania and you click experiences. You were born and raised in Tasmania, then. Yes. And I have read Frog Call, your book. Yep. One of my favorite books. It's incredibly written. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Were you a fisherman back then at that point? No, my interest as a child has always been with um, natural things. For an example, when I was five, my older brother and sister were already at school. And in those days, women's magazines at the beginning of the school year used to have a lift-out section that you could cut into and you would have labels to put on your school books. And my brother, he wanted cars, planes and trucks. No problem there. Just take them all. I don't care. And my sister, she wanted puppies and lambs and and cows. And I like puppies and lambs and cows, but um, they're not personable to me. I would no more want an anonymous man on my book than I would want an anonymous man or woman on my book. I had all the wild animals, and that's what I wanted. And from as far back as I can remember, just wild animals, wild places have always naturally appealed to me. Mm-hmm. So when I was growing up, I had I kept aquarium with tadpoles and frogs and mayflies and all that sort of stuff. And I came into fly fishing simply because I love the natural world and merely observing it isn't enough. Um, I find probably the best analogy that I use is you can have a... Um, relationship with people merely by observing them or you can interact with them and interacting always delivers the best outcomes and fly fishing more than anything else enables me to interact with the environment and it just seemed natural fit yeah it sounded like a natural fit so you have a brother and a sister I have uh, four brothers and one sister big family yes were your parents together when you guys were raised? Yeah. 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 Were they both from Tasmania? Um, yes. My uh, father was a farmer and professional or commercial fisherman, saltwater fisherman, oh. off the east coast of Tasmania. Did that have any influence in your life as an angler? Not really. But by the time he had a family, he had pretty much stopped commercial fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had moved from an island, which is now a national park, Moraw Island, to mainland Tasmania. Mm-hmm. Um but he retained a love for the sea, so he used to take us out in the cray dinghy and we used to go handline fishing for oh, flathead cool. cod. And all that was really good, but he was so good at knowing where the reefs and things were that you'd drop a handline down with three hooks on it and you'd pull it up and it'd have three fish on it. It might even have four because maybe a squid had grabbed <laughs> right. one of the flathead or something. <laughs> and so it was fun, but you know, after a while it becomes very boring because it's just the same old day in, day out. Mm-hmm. We did have a small stream that ran past um, our place. It was very uh, slow and warm. So when you caught a trout out of it, it was something to be cherished. Right. And the fact that you had to put in days of effort to get a good fish made every one of those fish so valuable in a way that the flathead weren't. Right, right. What about your mum? What does she do? Um, my mum was a home mum, and um, I come from a family that has... Uh, quite a lot of autism in it and I have two brothers who have had problems with autism in that they can't really fit into society or look after themselves and mum was pretty much a prisoner in her own home all the time that I was growing up. Were you kind of a loner growing up? Pretty much because I grew up in a logging town and a sensitive young boy in a logging town uh, meant that uh, you're on the outside. I really broke out of that when I went to boarding school 
Okay. And when you had a bigger community and you could fit in with other people with similar interests. When I was reading your book, I felt like you maybe were a little bit of a loner and even a little more intelligent than a lot of the kids in your classroom. A lot of the... I think I was probably... Uh, intelligence is such a hard thing, though. It's, it's a difficult it's so, word yeah. to, to use, and it's really tough for you to even admit if that was the case. But yeah. I felt like you had a really... Um, I felt like your insight into the world at that age may have been a little more advanced than other people in your peer group. Am I right in thinking Yeah, that? and also because um, I think I've got... Um, I've got a lot of those autistic traits, so that you know, I can see prime numbers, and I have a huge memory, and... Most of the traits don't make me very dysfunctional. So it means that you see the world in a way other people don't see. And particularly in small country logging towns, most children don't like strange or weird. Um, but, you know, a good thing was that there were uh, several girls in my classes who were equally smart. Right. And um, they were a good counterbalance to that. Ah, because you seem to connect really well with women. Yeah, well, I connect well with... I know lots of blokes that I connect well with now. But back mm. then, I think it, there was less... Um, women or girls were a lot less ego-driven than the boys that I was growing up with. But you know, I go back to those areas now, and I have learned to really like all those people. And I spent a lot of time on the west coast of Tasmania working in places like Storm and Queenstown and on the east coast in places like Fingal. And I have come to really, really like all those people um, that I was growing up with. Right. Uh, but back then it was hard. Yeah, that's fair enough. But your, yeah, your book really opened my eyes to a little bit more about you. You're very, very vocal and you're extremely honest with your opinions. And I want to go into some of that stuff later because yep. a lot of people in Tasmania credit you for being the most important um, person in, in the fishing world that Tasmania has ever seen. Have you heard that before? Um, I haven't really heard that before. If I was going to nominate the most influential two people in Tasmania, I would go for David Scholes and Robert, Robert Sloan. Sloan. yeah. Um, I think because I really did do the first comprehensive and accurate guidebook for Tasmanian waters and I did document a lot of waters that were completely undocumented and I worked out a lot of the patterns. Um, for example, you know, there are no trout in any of the rivers between Macquarie Harbour and New River Lagoon. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody had ever observed that before. Um, and we still don't really know why that's the case, because the fish do migrate around the coast, and why they haven't got into those waters is anyone's guess, really. Um, similarly, in the Central Plateau, with the help of Rob Sloan, um, we did work out a lot of the patterns. So rather than having to say to people, this lake is a trophy water, this lake is a trophy water, this lake is a trophy water, which is always dangerous because if you pinpoint... A lot of these, a lot of these lakes are very, very small, and if you pinpoint them and suddenly you have 100 anglers converge on them, um, you can lose that. Right. If, on the other hand, you know that there's 20 or 30 or 50 of these lakes out there, and rather than nominating them, you give people the tools by which they can discover them for themselves. Mm -hmm. So basically... A trophy water in our western central plateau is generally going to be one that is at the head of a gutter stream connection and it has no spawning at the lake. Okay. So give that information to people they can find them themselves. And the advantage of that is it's actually very easy to find them yourself. Mm -hmm. But having found them yourself, you feel ownership over it. So you become protective of it. Right. Which and isn't a bad thing. That's a great thing. Yeah. Um, and so people have been able to take that on board and they've used it and they've come to love the areas as much as I love them. Right. And uh, 
so people credit me with helping their fishing experience. But really, what I've done is minor compared to the influence of people like Rob Sloan. Well, let's talk about what you have done. So you you finished high school. You're a yep. fisherman at this point. Yeah. And you go to college, I'm assuming. Okay, so I went to college and my pet interests um, are physics, particularly nuclear physics and astrophysics. And uh, I've recently got a chemistry as well. But the school system didn't really suit the way I think, so I was completely burnt out by the end of college. The other thing that I do reasonably well is building, so I became a builder. I did an apprenticeship, and then I did three years working by myself as a contract builder. Oh, okay. And then I decided that I should really move into the areas where I'm passionate about, and I became a parks ranger for a few years. Right. And then Rob Slane actually employed me as a um, with the you know, fisheries service here. I first heard about Rob Slane when he published his book, um, The Truth About Trout, which I think he did either when he was a biologist working at Great Lake or maybe it was published just after he became the Commissioner of Inland Fisheries here in Tasmania. One of the very youngest heads of department in Tasmania, yeah, probably in Australia. He even it even read like he was young. I, yeah, when I read it, he sounded like he was young. Was it in the late seventies or early eighties? Uh, he wrote. He did Truth about trout in nineteen eighty four. Eighty four. Yep. Yeah. And what was revolutionary about that book is I read a lot of stuff about fishing, but if I look at um, my heroes in writing, an American fellow by the name of Joe Brooks. Oh, was, who's that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and. Joe Brooks, like a lot of his contemporaries and a lot of the people that went before him, he wrote about fly fishing using the pattern that goes, this is a dry fly and this is how you use it, this is a nymph, this is how you use it, this is a streamer and this is how you use it. And I was interested in that, but it wasn't that inspirational to me. My inspiration from Joe Brooks was more about places and writing and fisheries conservation and he did lots of other stuff as well that really influenced me. But at the time, I was still really a spin fisherman, but I had begun sight fishing because you see lots of fish in out clear crystal water in Tasmania. Yeah. Rob's book, when it came out, was completely different. It, it said, this when you're walking on the lakeshore and you see a tail in the water, this is how you fish for that fish. Mm. When you see a fish rising to mayflies, this is how you fish for that fish. When you see a fish busting up bait fish, this is how you see it. When the fish is not apparently doing any of those things, but you can see it because you're polaroiding it and swimming along in the water, this is what you can do. And that is how I see my fish. It okay. is what made fly fishing make sense to me. Because it was a situational-based book. Yeah. Okay. So and I also like... Rob did a thing where he recognised uh, things like bidging fish feed in wind lanes and froth lines in the middle of lakes. That was revolutionary. That actually appealed to me most in his book. I took a lot of notes when I was reading his book, and that was one of the areas where I really slowed down to read every single word when when he was talking about wind lanes. And it was completely revolutionary, and it made so much sense to me that you know sometimes you're at a lake and all of a sudden... Five fish rise at once. None have risen in the previous half hour or rise in the next half hour. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you can make sense of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So and when did you get it. to meet Rob and how did that so happen? So when I 
decided that um, I really should have a job that was more aligned with my most passion. It wasn't that I was disinterested in building, and it certainly wasn't that I was a bad builder. What were you building? Uh, cottages, houses. Maybe. Okay. Yep. Um, and But that I was just much, much more interested in hiking and fishing. Right. So let's get a job that aligns with that. And I did apply for a job with the Inland Fisheries Service, and they were looking for a law enforcement officer. Rob Slane interviewed me at that interview and um, decided that I was the wrong person for, for to be a law enforcement officer. And Why? Re- You've probably got to be a bit more brutal than I am. Oh, you're not brutal? No. <laughs> Maybe not. kidding. You're one of the most... <laughs> you, you don't, you're not intimidating at all. I'm sorry, Greg. Yeah. You just don't have to look. So that was fine. And then I did second best and became a parks ranger. But at okay. the end of being a parks ranger, uh, Rob did contact me when the vacancy came up to, in the at the Salmon Ponds Hatchery. And yeah. so I took on that job. And at the end of, I don't know, maybe four years in that job... He uh, offered me the job of assisting him with coming up with a management plan for our Western Lakes Wilderness. Okay, now how old were you at that time? That would be 99, it's probably at 29, I think. Okay, and how much older than you is Rob? I think Rob is probably, it seemed like an awfully long, he seemed like a father figure to me when I first met him, but it's really probably only five or six years oh is that all yeah okay but you know when you the, the man is a towering giant intellectually and um when you're confronted with a man like that they do feel so much more mature than you are mm-hmm. they are far more, far more com- competent and capable so yeah why didn't he write the books that you were writing uh rob was much more interested in fisheries management mm-hmm. and also in explaining um, how to sight fish and hunt trout rather than just fish blind for them. Right. So, yeah, it's just preoccupied with other things. Mm-hmm. Rob could easily have done it. So when did you meet Francis, your wife? Uh, I met Francis uh, about the same time, actually, about when I, when I was 29. So you meet Francis. And again, I'm just doing a timeline in my head yeah. from your book because your book is, is really a tell-all. You do um, You really share your timeline and your experiences with the reader. But I got the impression that you worked for the government. So were you working for the government? At that time, I was. So even when I was doing, working with Rob Sloan, it's, it was uh, in a fisheries service, a government agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was working with the fisheries management plan for the Western Lakes, that was a, um, a government-funded initiative. Right. Um, so, yes, I was a government worker at that time. What did you think of that? I just liked that year of working in the Western Lakes and filling in the gaps of our knowledge. Basically, we mapped the entire distribution of trout in our Western Lakes wilderness area. And for those who don't know, it's an alpine moor area full of very, very shallow lakes. And depending on how small you want to go Mm -hmm. um, before you are prepared to label something a lake, there's anywhere between 300 and several thousand lakes up there. And they're all interconnected, and um, brown trout infiltrated those lakes um, naturally from the Derwent River when when the river door was first stopped. Um, and they work their way upstream. They go right to the headwaters unless there's some barrier, usually a waterfall or something that prevents them from getting up to the top. Mm-hmm. But I had mapped out most of it. It's a big area. I'd mapped out most of it, but there were gaps. And there are also gaps in our understanding where, where, you, where you have a water, for example, that doesn't have trout, but there's no obvious barrier, barrier fall on it. Mm-hmm. What's happening? 
So in that year, we were able to work that out. We also mapped the distribution of native fish, galaxias uh, particularly, and um, invertebrates. And And the government was funding all of this. The government was funding all that. And we interviewed um, the users in the area to ask them how they wanted the um, area managed, particularly Mm -hmm. in relation to uh, vehicular access and walking access and aircraft access and all that stuff. And we came up with a report which recommended how the area should be managed based on the environmental objectives of um, the World Heritage Area, which mm-hmm. is stated in a uh, overarching management plan, and the, um, the interest of stakeholders. And it was a very hard thing for me personally because I'm a conservationist at heart, much more of a walker than, say, a four-wheel driver, mm-hmm. um, to put my personal interests behind and put the interests of the stakeholders first. Um, Rob was very, very good at that. So the recommendations um, were very easy for him because he was able to do it. If it fits with the management plan, it's what the stakeholders want. Right. That's what we really have to recommend. Pretty clever. Sounds very um, political. It's very, very political, and you have to you have to walk a uh, fine line. Look, in the end, the management plan, our management plan, sat on the shelf for a long, long time. Yeah. And uh, in fact, a lot of the recommendations and a lot of the way that you look at finish fisheries management was adopted in, say, New South Wales before it was adopted here. Right. Um, but now. Bit by bit, a lot of that stuff actually has become law. And it's become law with the backing of the stakeholders. So that's good. It means that the area is much more sustainable than it might have been. And um, I'm a passionate advocate of getting people out into the bush and interacting with it. A lot of my um, fellow conservationists don't much like the idea of people in wilderness because they feel that it's an ill fit. But I'm old enough to have seen Lake Peter National Park completely inundated under hydroelectric development. Um, I've seen big swaths of Hearts Mountains National Park logged. I don't believe for a second that places are safe just because they've been reserved. And I really feel that the only way that you can look after the places that I love best is to have a whole bunch of passionate advocates out there working to preserve them. And you can only do that if those places are of interest to people, part of their day-to-day lives. So let's talk a little bit about tourism here. Uh, right now yep. we're sitting in Dan and Simone Hackett's shop, Riverfly 1864. They're fantastic people. And I just want to, to chat with you a bit about the the fishing industry here. I know that they can get a little frustrated at times because it feels like tourism is going everywhere else in the world today, especially with the internet. You can research all these amazing places, but a lot of people still uh, don't seem to be coming to Tasmania. They they go elsewhere. They go to New Zealand. They go, I don't, I don't know, to Florida. Why are they not coming to Tasmania? Uh, okay. or, are, or are they? Maybe I'm wrong. No, no, um, I don't think Tasmania is getting its fair share of international tourism for sure. Um, It's getting a good share of mainland tourism, um, but I would like to see a lot more international tourism. I've just um, been working on a book that is basically about the 20 best wild trout fisheries left in the world. And very definitely 
Tasmania's central plateau and particularly our Western Lakes Wilderness is right up there in that group. So why, you, why? What constitutes as... Okay, so if you're going to talk about best, of course you have to qualify. <laughs> um, so best for me is a place that has wild fish and where you have the opportunity to um, hunt those fish and where the experience is unavailable anywhere else in the world. If it's an experience that is um, ubiquitous, then you know you don't really need to travel to go and see it, and you can get it in your backyard. Mm-hmm. So the places that I've looked at have something unique, wild fish, generally um, lots of opportunities for stalking fish. Um, not always, because uh, there are waters like the steelhead fisheries in British Columbia mm-hmm. where stalking isn't the main game there. Nonetheless, it's a unique fishery and it has influenced the way trout fishing is perceived globally and it has, it's on everybody's bucket list. Mm-hmm. It deserves to be in there anyway. Um, but other than that, you have waters like the um, Taman and Lenox fishery in Mongolia or the backcountry fishing for browns on the South Island or the rainbow fishing on the North Island of New Zealand. Um, and pretty much they're all site fisheries. Um, Which I know you're a big fan of. Yes. Um, so, yeah, but Tasmania's there. It should have a much bigger percentage of the global fishing tourism market than it has. Right. And I would say the main reason it doesn't is that it's really at the bottom of the world. It takes, a, if you're travelling from America, you have to fly right across the Pacific, you know, 15 or 16 hours. You get to mainland Australia, then you have to take another flight down to Tasmania. But New Zealand's at the bottom of the world. You can fly direct to New Zealand, uh-huh. um, and it has a it, it's a bigger area, bigger country, if you like, than Tasmania as a state. Right. Um, and but you have a point, and that is that being at the bottom of the world and being hard to get to is only part of the story. Because New Zealand have done it brilliantly, and they um, encompass their fishing into a big tourism package as well. Right. Um, Tasmania can do that. Tasmania has got it all. And it's trying to do that right now, right? Yeah. But there is one thing that you will not attract people from um, the other side of the world to go and fish um, scrappy hatchery rainbows. Nobody's going to travel to the other side of the world to do that. Right. Um, we do have a problem at the moment that most of the people in fisheries management really do not understand what a wild trout is and what and why that is the asset that we need to promote. Because our wild brown trout fishery is still ninety nine percent of the whole entire fishery. Right. Um, but say our inland fisheries services, if you open up their webs website um, still concentrates more on its stocking practices than it does on our wild fishery. Are you happy with who's working in fisheries now today? Um, I, I, would, I would simply prefer that we concentrate on promoting our wild fishery and looking after our wild fishery. There is a problem, and it's a legitimate problem for managers, and that is looking after a wild fishery means looking after the environment. And looking after the environment, you don't have to do anything with a robust wild fishery other than look after the environment. And that is hard. You're treading on toes when you do that. If you're in a fisheries department, you have to argue with ministers for agriculture and ministers for forestry and ministers for mining to look after the environment. It is, it's easier. It's an awful lot easier 
just to tell the general public that you're stocking waters than to address those right. big issues. So say you have one day left on this planet mm-hmm. and you're bringing a friend, a long-time friend that you haven't seen in a long time on a, on a day trip. Yep. Tell me what specifically you want you would want to show off to them. Okay, what I specifically want to show off to anyone that comes to Tasmania is the way we hunt trout. And it is hunting. Um, I would definitely go to the Western Central Plateau and the Western Lakes. And I would, depending on the day, but if I had a perfect day, blue sky, um, just a gentle ripple on the water, I would take them to a water that is knee-deep to waist-deep. We would wade through it and we would do flat-style fishing for big, wild brown trout. Like what we did that day. Like what we did. Excellent. Bone fishing in fresh water, Yeah, basically. that's exactly what it felt like. Yep. Now, what about, I mean, the elephant in the room here is, oh, but Tasmanian trout, they just don't have the size that other places or other, um, you know, tourism areas like New Zealand have. What's your take on that? Um, size, I think virtually all the fly fishermen I know don't consider size to be that big a thing. So I fished in... You know, I've caught giant taimen in Mongolia. I've caught giant Atlantic salmon in Iceland and giant Arctic char. I've been to all the backcountry rivers in New Zealand. Giant fish again. Um, British Columbia, giant fish. I've just last week came back from Pyramid Lake in Nevada where giant Lahontan cutthroat trout. And I can go and fish a little mountain stream for half-pound brown trout and still get as big a thrill out of doing that as I did when I was 12 years old. Um, So I don't think size is a big thing. What Tasmania has got going for it is a completely unique environment with fish that are still good size. Like in Europe, they would be considered giant fish. In the Western Lakes, most of the trout are two to four pounds. Um, Virtually every one of them that we catch is a fish that we've cast to it's either been rising or charging after bait fish or tailing in after frogs in the shallows or you've just spotted it in shallow clear water that bone fishing thing that we've been talking about Um, and not only is it sight fishing in a pristine environment the western lakes itself is all wilderness it's all world heritage listed but there is scope to improve by developing skills. So when I was in Pyramid Lake, we're standing on ladders in a line of 60 people. And those 60 people are all casting out into the lake and everybody's catching fish. And basically anybody can go there and and catch good numbers of fish. In Tasmania, I think the average in the western lakes the average catch would be one fish per angler per day or less Mm -hmm. but over time as you develop your skills you can lift that way 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 up and so you get this reward for effort um and i don't want to discourage people from going to the western lakes by saying you know the average is only one fish or less per angler per day because um i sometimes talk daniel with his guiding and we can lift that average up for ranked beginners on the first day because, simply because, you know, how to see the fish, right. you know, where the fish are. Yeah, because when uh, I fished with Dan, we had multiple opportunities and, and big fish, really nice-sized fish. Yes. And everything was by sight, yeah. which actually leads me into a question. So if it's not size that drives the fishermen, and go for it. You can chug your beard. Oh, just good. Relax. Go for it. I'll give you a break. <laughs> um, yeah, if it's not size 
then what, in your opinion, is it that drives uh, the average angler? Um, golly, the average angler is probably interested in numbers, but the average angler uh, can also very easily be led to understand um, skill. So I have taken an awful lot of people fishing in my life. Um, I've done some professional guiding, mainly for friends. Um, I've fished with a lot of people from interstate and overseas. And no matter how, when those people arrive, no matter what their expectations are, whether it's lots of fish or big fish, everybody at the end of the day um, of hunting fish understands exactly what it's about. And really, once you've had a big day polaroiding, if you caught, you know, half a dozen or a dozen fish they're all fish that you've seen and that and you've landed them all because you've done a good cast in front of a good fish and you and you feel that you've been rewarded for your skill level yeah you never want to do anything else again where else in the world have you had an experience like that before where you can go out and sight fish all of your trout and then fish to them as if you're on flats oh okay well there's a lot of a lot of scope for doing that in new zealand um new zealand is a little bit different because it has such fantastic rivers. So most people in New Zealand, and also in those rivers, they're big fish, they're often easily seen, and they're often easily caught. Mm -hmm. So that leads the culture towards rivers, um, and people get early success on a fly in New Zealand, and therefore the fly fishing culture is probably bigger than it is in Tasmania. Um, it also means that most New Zealand fishermen prefer rivers just because that's where their culture has led them. But they have a wealth of magnificent lakes where you can do a style of fishing that's very, very similar to Tasmanian fishing. Um, and perhaps even it's a little bit easier and perhaps the fish are a little bit bigger. But what New Zealand doesn't have is the intimacy that you get from fishing very, very small lakes and lakes that you can walk from one lake, 100 metres to another lake that superficially looks the same but is completely different both in terms of environment and the size and quality of the fish that live in that particular lake. Yeah. Um, so having travelled all over the world, I would never ever say that Tasmania's central plateau fishery is better than the New Zealand backcountry fishery, for example. It's different. But um, they're on a par with each other. Right. They're definitely equal. Tasmanian fishing is that good. I feel like your lakes, when everybody had told me about Tasmanian lakes, I envisioned a typical lake like what I'd have at home in BC. Your lakes here actually felt a little bit like marshy, sort of, ooh, deadheads everywhere, quite shallow. I could walk out for quite a ways. It didn't ever feel like it was going to get much deeper than my waist. And there would literally be fish in, you know, a foot of water, and we could see them tailing, and you, you and I would be stalking really slowly, and then you'd go, stop. Yeah. And, you know, you'd put your arm out, and we'd both stop and yeah. just wait, and then we'd wait for the fish to turn around, and then we'd make the cast, and we couldn't climb over deadheads because there'd be a trout there waiting, we had to peek first. I mean, we were genuinely stalking. We were stalking, so I'll give you guys that. It's just, in living in Australia, it's one of those things where I get a little bit frustrated when everybody talks about coming out this way, and they lay over in Sydney, or they lay over in Melbourne, but and they go elsewhere. They, they don't stop and fish in Australia, and I just feel like there's all these opportunities that are being missed. So, what's your plan? Do you want more people here for tourism? 
I definitely want more pla- more people here for tourism. There's two reasons. One, I like to see people happy. And I know if they come to Tasmania to fish, they're going to be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is that I like, um, I love our fishery and I want to protect it. And I feel from the bottom of my heart that the only way to do that is by increasing advocacy. And you can only do that by having more people on the water. Mm-hmm. I do get criticism sometimes from people saying, um, I remember writing an article on Lake Meston for Fly Life magazine. And I had six people um, contact me and say that I really shouldn't have been writing about Lake Meston because it was a delicate wilderness fishery and that we shouldn't be encouraging any more people to go there. Um, And I actually got hold of all those people and had an in-depth talk with them. So I was curious to know how they learned about Lake Meston in the first place. Every single one of them had learnt it from my guidebooks. And so, and also Lake Meston... In, within the Western Lakes, it's one of the most robust fisheries. It's not ever going to be overfished. There's no, there's no way that fishing pressure is going to affect that lake at a biological level. More visitors means that the nature of the experience changes a bit. But for me, that's preferable to losing the fishery altogether. Tell me about your first book, because when I had when Dan introduced me to you or you to me, what he had said is that uh, you wrote the first ever book that really highlighted all of the fisheries in Tasmania. Is that the case? Uh, I think so. There was there was a, a book down um, earlier than my guidebook in the mid seventies, mm-hmm. um, but by the time I was fishing, it was long out of print and right. unavailable to me. It wasn't comprehensive. And there were also some mistakes in it. Um, so my when I wrote my first book, it was the only one that was actually attempted to be comprehensive and was actually available at the time. You've got to remember, this is before the days of the internet. So yeah. if there wasn't a guidebook, there was no way of knowing anything. Right, and you just knew this because of being a parks ranger? Uh, I knew that because, no, because at that time I was still a builder and I was just... Um, wandering out there, collecting experiences, and then wanting to let other people know about it. Um, But the last version of that book that was published by the Australian Fishing Network in 2011 is a work that I'm really proud of. It's Mm -hmm. um, it's a big book, and it's it's comprehensive. It's accurate. There are no secrets. All my favourite waters are listed there, and they're given the priority that they deserve. Um, I've not wanted to hide anything. And... Again, because people say, gee, how can you write about the waters you love and give them such a high profile and mm-hmm. attract everybody else there? But it's what I've been talking about the whole time. Coming up, Greg shares some insight to his upcoming book about the declining trout fishery in Yellowstone National Park. He has some fascinating statements in this segment that are sure to interest anglers all around the globe. It would have been early last year. Yeah. It would have been, because I started filming for my show in May. And do you remember me saying to you, I'm writing this book and this, that, and the other thing, and I don't know what to do. I'm stuck on the concept. I don't know how to turn it into television because I've never written a television series before. Do you remember any yeah, of this yeah, conversation? Yeah, 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 yeah. And you started chatting with me and you were explaining, you know, Hemingway writes and you were explaining you need to get this book and that book. And I left our trip with my brain spinning. And I actually wrote a blog post about you and I was writing about you as a Tasmanian devil. And I went on to describe you as this... Tasmanian devil who basically came into my life, did this crazy whirlwind in my head, left it in a mess, and then left. And I just had a cloud of dust, and I couldn't see through it. 
So you very That was a Warner's Brothers Tasmanian dude. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a real Tasmanian devil. It was very cartoon. It was very much a cartoon. But what you did was you were very kind, and you sent me a list, um, a very interesting and comprehensive reading list. Do you remember this? Yeah, I do. And you broke it down, and you said, read these because you'll learn how to write better. Read these because you'll start to understand different writing styles. And read these because you'll understand um, like different fisheries and, and different fishing writers. I read almost every single book on that list that you sent me. Was it helpful? Oh, my God. Okay. Eat Shoots and Leaves by Lynn Trust changed... Was, was that you? Oh, yeah, yes, yes. Changed my life. Um, Charles Fraser, yep. Cold Mountain, which is one of my favorite books of all time. Yeah. And you introduced me to Cormac McCarthy. Cormac McCarthy, yeah. Yeah, I didn't like him. <laughs> I really didn't like him. He actually made me want to jump off a bridge. He's very depressing. Yeah. No, the reason I recommended him to look at is his writing style has no grammar in it. And he gets away with it. Yeah. And you've got actually got to be that good a writer because to be able he, to get away with ex- not using grammar. Exactly. And so I studied all the different styles. And, of course, you know, Hemingway. And I studied their style, and I was able to really see what you were talking about. Yeah. Because so what style do you like best? Um, Charles Fraser. I, I read Cormac. And I respected what he was doing because I could see that he knows how to write well enough that he could get away with what yeah. he was doing. But he was just very dark and very daunting. But and very, very bleak. Case in point, what you did was you were really, really, really helpful for me and my journey. And I'll have to send you that blog post. But you really opened my eyes. Oh, so you. after I got to the whole list, I got to your book. And I read Frog Call. And again, that's what I opened up this podcast with is... You really, you know, in- introduce yourself and your life to me through your book. But you're one of the more interesting writers I've read because you approach everything with humor, it feels like. And you also had this really liberal feel about you. I feel like you're the sort of guy who would go walking around in a lake naked and, and just say, this is life, it's natural. Talk to me a little bit about... About that. Am I reading wrong? I mean, your writing style seemed to have this really open-minded sort of laugh at really conservative people and uh, and the structures that were faced with me. Well, I did write... I read another book um, that offended my family. Um, it was called Menagerie of False Truths. Um, and it's because I talked about autism and mental health issues in my family. And... Um, my family didn't appreciate that because they felt that is stuff that should be kept from public view. But I don't have any of those inhibitions. I don't take myself so seriously that I think that it matters. And I also think that the things that really matter in life are... It's nice to get insights, proper, honest insights into the human condition... And so I like to be truthful. Now, it's strange, because if you talk to my mates, they're going to tell you that I'm an exaggerator and a liar. Um, but there's a difference between exaggerating and actually being honest. Honesty, um, you know, if, if you've caught five fish and you say you've caught nine, it's really trivial. It doesn't matter. Um, if, if you uh, pretend that um, you're someone that you are not, if you are embarrassed about your sexuality or you're embarrassed about your political views or you're embarrassed about your own spirituality um, and you pretend that you're someone that you're not, that is dishonest. That's the, the line I use. And also, I sort of feel really strongly that whoever you are is who you are. And um, 
I just refused to be embarrassed by it. Yeah, I didn't get at all that you had yeah. any sort of humiliation. But I also didn't gather that you were an exaggerator or, or a liar when I was reading your works. No, that's just a different thing. Like, if it matters that I won't, we will fisherman exaggerate. You're, you're a stark contrast to what I assumed, foolishly, yeah. that you might be. Because when I met you for the first time uh, in Tasmania at that event through Dan and Simone, yep. y- you know, you're, you're, you're gray hair, you're mm-hmm. a gray beard, and you've got your... Glasses on, and you, you just I look have conservative, a, do I? You look like a conservative. Yeah, <laughs> you totally do. You look like a conservative, which is great. I'm, fr- I'm yep. friends with everybody in the world. <laughs> but you did not strike me as somebody who is going to be so vibrating with energy and so quick to, you know, speak the truth about um, just about your life. Your, even your book surprised me. When I first opened your book, I was scanning through it, and one of the words that struck me was... Fuckedness. <laughs> and I seriously, you have no idea. I sat there for five minutes. Fuckedness? Fuckedness. Fuckedness? I couldn't figure out what, it, am I reading this right? Is this a different <laughs> word? I looked it up. I couldn't for the life of me figure it out. It out. And then I started to read your book just um, just in an airplane. It's brilliantly laid out. You should be very proud of that book. But uh, yeah, you're, you're quite humorous. So oh, do you look you. at, but do you look at your whole life like that? Or is, does it just come out in your writing? No, I think life's pretty humorous, really, and um, and also I'm naturally optimistic, I suppose, and more than anything else, I actually really, really enjoy life. So I think I'm I'm quite sure that I'm not going to have any regrets when I when I die. When I, you know, some stage someone's going to say you've got a terminal illness. I don't think I'll have any regrets about my life when that happens. Um, yeah, but you know. It, you use, use humour and you use honesty, but in the end, there's stuff that you really want to talk about that's important stuff. I'd like to think that people who read Frog Call understand the important stuff that underpins that whole book from start to finish. I didn't write a book to be humorous. I wrote a book to preserve the Tasmania that I know, mm-hmm. because most people who write about Tasmania have a different perspective to Tasmania than I do. Right. So there's very definitely a Tasmania that I want people to recognise that exists. Your message was very clear. Yeah. And it came through, though, in a way where I never felt like you were... Excuse me. I never felt like you were pushing me. I always felt like you were just leading me through your journey and your viewpoint. I never felt like you were forcing it. Something that I wanted to ask you about, just on a personal level, is you kept making reference to children and babies and you and Francis and so was that a big step for you guys oh it's not a natural step we decided that we'd have children and because it felt like you guys were unsure a few chapters felt like maybe you were unsure if that was a step for you to take we both really enjoy our life so we didn't need children to complete our life or to make it valid or anything like that so when you have a great life and you love your life is it a biological thing that changes within you that says maybe we should we should do this? What why change something if it's already so great? What well, that's an interesting you? question, isn't it? Um, I think that you're always looking for new experiences and new adventures, and um, having children just seemed like one of those natural things to do. Why walk Why walk to a different lake when you've got one that you're perfectly happy with? Um, I don't know. I like, some some people don't. I know, but I do. I always want to know what's over the next hill and around the next bend. So it was just uh, 
It was just another bend in the river, really. Right. I yeah. remember why I was thinking you were so liberal. It's because you actually wrote about you and Francis having sex in Frockle. <laughs> now, it's not like it was Fifty Shades of Frogs or anything like that. It wasn't like that. But you did. You made mention of, you know, your friends had to go out and you guys were trying to conceive. And whether you know it or not, because I know that you you, you were writing for, for you, because that's what writers do, but you really shared a lot of your life with your reader. Was that your intention? And if so, why were you trying... Why would... Why were you so willing to share your life with people? Um, okay, so that happened uh, actually when I was working on the Trout Fishing Management Plan with Rob Sloan and the week before, two weeks before, I forget when it was, um, we'd made the, the decision that we'd have children and we were camped on an island in the middle of a small lake in the middle of the wilderness, which would be, I don't know, 15 or 20 kilometres walk from the nearest road. And Rob and I just got back from our um, days sampling and researching. We get back to the island and on the shore where you can see Francis and another one of my mates there. Francis is jumping up and down saying, hey, I'm ovulating. This is it. We've got to make a baby now. Um, But the reason that you write about that is simply because I want to explain how important those places that you love become in your life. I mean, this is a pivotal pivotal place for me. There's a, um, a depth of spirit, spirituality in those places. Mm-hmm. And people seem to be... Often people say to me, um, only Indigenous people have that sort of particular attachment to the land. Mm, um, that's interesting. And I want to demonstrate that that attachment to the land um, actually is available to anybody who cares to live it. Um, And I think in terms of conservation, that is the sort of spiritual attachment to land that you need to get so that the next time that there's an election, you don't put that um, tax break or that uh, bit of pork barrelling ahead of what is good for you spiritually. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also... I'm, I've never, ever been very materialistic. I'm capable of earning good money. Um, Wait, on that note, why do you tell me about your car again? What do you drive? Oh, I don't even know <laughs> what it is. It's just an old car. Tin can. Yeah, it's an old tin can. Um, and usually, you know, you can upgrade, you upgrade the car. But I would much prefer to go somewhere else interesting in the world, I oh, think. Greg, I haven't owned a car since 2009. Yeah. I I just I, for me do you know how how I do it if it's of any interest tell me yes I'm just I <laughs> I have a uh, I have a a rental card that, you know uh, through Enterprise and for me I for the last what are we in 2015 oh my god for the last six years every time that I need a car I just rent one and if you actually crunch the numbers for how much you you use your for me anyway for my lifestyle how much I use my car. It's a fraction. By the time you factor in all the other issues, it's actually cheaper for me just to rent one. And even now, Charles, my you know my mm. husband, he so badly wants me to have a car, but I'm quite content to take the bus or rent a car or take a cab. I mean, for me, if I was living in a city, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't own a car. But even even in the country, when I do, when it does come time, when I I mean, I still do rent a rent mm. a truck when I'm up north because it's still cheaper. By the time you factor in depreciation, I write everything off as a business expense, obviously, and then yeah. my insurance is covered on my travel visa, and then you get enough points of travel that you just rent it with your points. So for my lifestyle, it works out. But um, even when I do end up 
buying something. It's going to be a tin can. I've never believed in owning a brand new car. I've done it. I've been there. It drove me broke when I was a kid. But I'll never own a new car. So when you rolled in in your tin can and you got out <laughs> of your car, I just I knew I immediately liked you because you do not come across as pretentious or materialistic at all. No. Not at all. I don't try not to come across. It's just the way it is. I have no interest in buying a new car. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a lot of interest in travel and I have a lot of interest in culture and people. And also because, well, you know, I've run out of collecting places to visit in Tasmania. I have actually been to every river, every lake um, in Tasmania. And there's places that I love and I'll go keep going back to for the rest of my life. And like I say, the Western Lakes, for me, it is, of all the places I've fished all over the world, it's still my favourite place. But... Um, in order to keep gathering new experiences, um, I do have to travel more and more. But also it's great conservation stories by, by travelling further afield too. And they going to new places helps you reimagine your own the places that you're from. You can't possibly hope to expand your knowledge of fly fishing by fishing in on your doorstep all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so by way of example... There was a problem that the Yellowstone cutthroat trout fishery was under dire threat in Yellowstone National Park. And it was under threat because of, uh, apparently because of lake trout had been illegally introduced to Yellowstone Lake. Um, and things were so dire that some of the spawning runs had collapsed from 22,000 fish a year to 500, where anglers were catching 50 fish in a session in parts of the outflow stream um, they were now catching one or two or none and I, I felt this compulsion to get there before the thing completely collapsed mm. um, so in preparing for that trip I did a lot of research where do I go where in this fantastic world renowned national park do you go what, you know, what are the places that I can fish for Yellowstone cutthroat trout in it and what is actually happening to these fish and the more I read the more a lot of the um, rationale, a lot of the argument didn't seem to fit. It seemed to me that... You mean that they were declining in numbers? Well, it's irrefutable that the fishery was collapsing, but the rationale, the idea that it was um, an illegally introduced population of lake trout in Yellowstone Lake was primarily responsible for it, really didn't seem to fit. And so the trip ended up becoming a research trip. And we spent a lot of time in Yellowstone National Park and we interviewed a lot of people. And it seemed to me that there were alternative um, theories about why the fishery had collapsed that seemed to fit the evidence a lot, lot better than the stuff that was in the media. Um, so that's a story. But it's a fairly dry story. But hold on, let, just why did it not? Why did the numbers not add up for you? Oh, well, for example, we have um, uh, they were putting the the date of the legal introduction of lake trout into Yellowstone Lake as nineteen eighty nine, and they were doing that based on let's not get too technical, but based on the strontium calcium ratios in the otoliths of the fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I look at the actual report, rather than the stuff that's in the media. Um, find that only three fish were sampled and they got two different results from three fish it's not a valid sample not at all just so that for the public the yeah. otolith if i'm right it's a calcium carbonate buildup or an ear stone between 
behind the fleshy part of the brain. Yeah, so you can do you can age fish by doing scale samples, but the yeah. problem is that particularly with trout, as the fish gets older, the growth gets smaller, and the the chicks in the scale get so close together that you right. really can't differentiate them. But the so odorless, like a like tree, like rings in a tree. Absolutely. So basically, you kill the fish. You take the smaller your bone out, you bake it, and then you slice it, and it's just like looking at the rings in a tree, and it's accurate. And you can tell a lot by looking at the mineral content. Yeah, and then because strontium is chemically the same as calcium. What is that? Strontium? strontium. Okay, that's some sort of. It's a, an element. Okay. Uh, chemical okay. element, and it's um, exactly the same as calcium mm-hmm. uh, chemically. Um, it's just directly underneath calcium periodically. Um, but basically, um, your body wants to take up, or your bones want to take up calcium. Mm-hmm. Um, it will also take up strontium exactly the same. Mm. So the background level of strontium versus calcium is replicated in the ear bone. And if you tran- every lake, every water has a different calcium strontium ratio, if you transfer a fish from one water to another, you can tell immediately. Right. But um, you need more than three fish. Well, if you've got three fish and you've got two different salts from three fish, you definitely <laughs> want to sample a few more than that. Um, but then there were things like, you know, it was being argued that um, there were only 75,000 um, catchable cutthroat trout left in Yellowstone Lake, down from 4.5 million, but that there were 500,000 lake trout, Mackinac, in the lake, and that each lake trout was eating 40 cutthroats a year. The maths doesn't work. Doesn't okay. come close. What year was this that you went to go and research this? Uh, 2012. Okay, so you were not working for the government at this no, point. No, no, no. I was, I was just very curious and I did want to go and have a look at this. Wait, thing. So, so wow. for your own research, just for your own knowledge, you flew yourself into the States? I'm a writer, so I know there's a story. I'll track yeah. down a good story anywhere. <laughs> but the latest one, so the, the book that's uh, Patagonia have agreed to publish my Yellowstone book. Excellent. So when I... When I did the Yellowstone stuff, and we come up with a completely, well, we look at the, well, one thing I did find when I was doing the Yellowstone stuff was that when I'm reading the stuff on the internet, I'm reading the books, and I'm reading the, um, the columns that have been published in media right across the United States and internationally, everybody agrees that this particular series of events happened that it was 1989 lake trout were put there lake trout are eating the cutthroat trout the cutthroat trout population has crashed and the only way that you can reverse that is by removing the the lake trout Um, but because for a bunch of reasons and when the book comes out people can read what they are and make up their own mind most of that makes no sense at all Um, i did wonder how come that monolithic viewpoint had become so entrenched um, in all forms of media. So I traced it all back, and it turns out that it all goes back to the press releases from the people that are working on the project, that there's been no independent research, there's been no um, you know, uh, investigative journalism at all. And so you sort of think, well, we're at this age where um, newspapers don't make the money they used to do anymore and you can just put out a press release. It's easy to run with a press release. It becomes common knowledge. It gets replicated through and all of a sudden you end up with, like I say, a monolithic viewpoint, even though that viewpoint is clearly nonsensical. Um, anyway, if it is nonsensical, and it is, then can you come up with alternative um, rationale? And you can. You can do that easily, which we did. But my point is that even though we've got a really good story, a really good biological and conservation story out of that, that can still be pretty dry reading. So how do you present that information in a form 
that is going to be um, an enjoyable read for people. And so I ended up just doing it as travel log. I go to go to Yellowstone and all these things happen to you while you're in Yellowstone. You meet all these weird and wonderful people and they've all got all these great stories. And it becomes more about people than about the fish. And a bit like Frog Call, where you're saying, you know, Frog Call's a, uh, a, a humorous and witty read, but there's a big message under it, or a big, not even a message, there's a big chunk of serious me underneath that. So in 2012 you went there, did you know you were going to write a book at the time, or did the book come after you went? No, I knew I'd write a few, you know, magazine articles and stuff about it, but the story became so interesting. Um, and the environment's so interesting. And there's a big link back to Tasmania too. What, how so in okay, Yellowstone so Park? Way back in the 1950s, um, we go back further than that. In around the 1860s, uh, we learnt how to do trout hatcheries quite well. Um, Tasmania was involved in that because the efforts to get trout eggs to Tasmania, which at that time had no trout and had no other sport fish, um, the people involved in trying to get salmon and trout to Tasmania were at the very forefront of um, hatchery management and innovation. And they actually managed to do it they, by holding the eggs on ice through the tropics in tall ships, get them here, hatch them out, and Tasmania was the first place in the Southern Hemisphere that ever got trout. So that's from England? From England, yeah, from the British Isles. Okay. And so... That's the, the genesis of it. Now, after that, the rise and rise of the trout hatchery seemed to occur with no real um, no real analysis of whether it was actually of benefit in any way. I mean, you ask yourself, if I've got a trout hatchery and I'm stocking fish into a river or a lake, what am I trying to achieve? And there are a bunch of possible answers to that. But I would suggest that the things that you might be trying to achieve are more fish caught per angler, a greater number of licensed sales. Um, Not in the 1800s. Um, could be in America. It happened big time in America simply because the Industrial Revolution was in full swing and so was the railway era. And mm. so a lot of rivers were being polluted and overfished to the point where um, people were very concerned about their ability to catch fish. And so the idea with the hatchery was you didn't have to worry about destroying the environment and overfishing. You could just keep putting hatchery fish in and that would be enough to replace what was there. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that um, it doesn't really work that way. And so you have a situation where you're putting more and more and more fish into lakes and rivers for less and less and less return. Is it true that recent studies have shown that in Montana, when they stopped with the hatcheries, the fish... Fisher numbers actually multiplied? Yeah, usually it does. Um, it, it's a little bit complex, but basically if you've got a robust wild fishery, it is the best that that fishery can be. Um, there are arguments for hatchery fish in places, generally small ponds or which, or you know, lakes that don't have natu- scope for natural recruitment. Um, but it's a bigger issue. I do, I do touch a bit on that one in this book. Nonetheless, in... Out in New Zealand in the 1940s and 50s, a fellow by the name of Drusley Hobbs, um, he wrote um, a book about uh, population dynamics mm. in New Zealand fisheries. And his conclusion, he wasn't, he wasn't a uh, trained biologist. Um, 
But this book, and I actually do forget the name of it, it's rather long-winded name, um, was completely out of left field. It was saying hatcheries do more harm than good and you are best to leave well enough alone. In, understand this is in robust wild this fisheries. This is in the 40s and 50s. 40s and 50s. Wow. Now, his work um, was uh, really influential. It, it, a lot of biologists and a lot of fisheries managers around the world read that work and thought, this guy's got something. He's really, really got something down pat here. Now, back in Tasmania, um, the CSIRO in Australia decided, well, we should put this to the test. And they hired a, a fellow by the name of Aubrey Nichols, who was a PhD, um, to come to Tasmania and have a look at our wild fisheries and to actually see whether or not hatcheries had a beneficial or a, a detrimental impact on wild fisheries. So this was not for licensed sales. This was for experimentation yep. and to see what would happen. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, Nichols' work um, proved... Um, Absolutely, that hatcheries in Tasmania are a complete and utter waste of time at best and um, detrimental in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And he made a lot of recommendations. And the government then employed Hobbs from New Zealand to, um, to review that work. And Hobbs ended up becoming our first commissioner of inland fisheries. And he demonstrated political mastery in implementing Nichols' recommendations in Tasmania, which is you know, a pretty conservative state at that time. Mm -hmm. Now, what was more influential about that is that these ideas were taken up in America and they were um, taken up particularly by... But how did they even get to America? How uh, did this idea the get Scientists there? talk to one another. They always have done. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so in America, we had a, a um, Dr. Needham um, and his student, uh, Dr. Robert... Or, Robert Benke at the time. He was okay. a postgraduate student. Oh, Robert Benke, got it. Yep. And um, they decided that they would check to see whether the same thing was happening in America. And, of course, it was. And Benke became a passionate advocate of looking after the environment rather than stopping with um, hatchery fish. Mm -hmm. And Benke also pointed out um, a lot of the mistakes of stocking, particularly wild fisheries with hatchery fish. One of them is that if you have a, uh, a river like, say, the Columbia... Um, you have a species of trout, a rainbow trout. Um, but the rainbow trout has a number of life histories and a number of feeding strategies. And Benke had come to the view that those life histories and feeding strategies were mostly inherited traits. So that, uh, And it turns out that virtually 100% of all the steelhead have steelhead parents and virtually 100% of all the resident fish have resident parents. And also... Um, the fish that run to sea in their first year, second year, third year, um, or, or the fish that stay one, two, three years at sea, or the fish that use this stream, or they use that stream, most of it's hereditary, most of it's genetic. Yeah. So if you put a hatchery fish in amongst all those fish, they don't know who to breed with. And they break down all those genetic distinctions, and you end up with a single generic trout that is good at using maybe 20% of the habitat and not very good at using the other 80% of the habitat. So even today, when you remove dams from a river, often you can only build trout stocks up to 20 or 30 or 40% of their pre-European numbers, simply because the genetic diversity no longer exists that enables 
the progeny to utilise all parts of that river to optimum capacity. Now, Benke's um, main thing was that you could look, rather than stocking, that you would you would uh, try to manage a fishery as a purely wild fishery, let nature look after itself, and you reduce harvest by, by um, reducing bag limits um, and having slot limits. And it was first trialled on a big public scale in Yellowstone National Park. And it took a few attempts because nobody really knew the exact parameters. Mm -hmm. But eventually they tweaked it just right. And once they did, once they got the uh, bag limit down right and the slot limit right, and the bag limit was small enough to make sure the harvest was actually being reduced. It's no good having a bag limit. No good having a bag limit of two if the average catch rate is one. You know, it's great having a bag limit of two if the average catch is 12 because then you're actually making an impact. (laughs) And similarly with um, um, slot limits, what are you actually trying to achieve? Well, if you're trying to achieve at least one or two good spawns from a fish before it dies, that's great. You can work it out for that. And then maybe you can allow people to crop them off when they're older and they've already spawned once or twice. So they eventually got that. Uh, suite of regulations, perfect. And, what year do you think that and is? We're, we're talking about, we're talking late 60s, early 70s. Okay. Early 70s, I would think. Um, and Just in the, Montana? What about? No, this was, in, this was in Yellowstone National Park. Okay, so in the park. But what about the rest of North America? Were they well, once this there? happened, this is, this is the thing that really changed. It, it, the, the Yellowstone fishery had got to the point where in some parts of the fishery, the catch was 150th one fiftieth of its historic high. And once the suite of regulations took effect, and it only took two years to have an effect, we went from one fiftieth of what it used to be back to its historic best. Has it since stayed? And it did stay right up until this latest event where it's crashed again and it's been blamed on the late trout. Okay, right. the timeline's starting to piece together. Yes. Okay. So, um, but the success in Yellowstone National Park was the uh, impetus for catch and release to be widely adopted right across the United States and from the United States transferred right across the world, transported right across the world. Got it, got it. Um, but the original groundbreaking work for all that actually happened in Tasmania. So for me as a Tasmanian and having grown up reading about these people, that's just a, a link that's too big to resist when you're yeah. being at being a journalist. So what do the Americans think of the the one person who's coming in to really dive into this? Don't know. We'll, we'll, have to we'll have to wait and see until, until the book's published. Patagonia will have this book on the shelves in uh, June 2016. What's it called? Um, the working title's from Tasmania to Yellowstone, but that might change before it comes out. How come nobody else who lives there did this first? I just don't understand why well, it's I taking you to I don't really it. understand it either, but it's a common enough, it's a common enough thing that happens. You know, things become... Um, things become entrenched when people aren't really thinking about it or if, or if other views aren't being expressed in the media you're only exposed to one viewpoint yeah. um, then it's easy to believe that that is the correct viewpoint and yeah. if it's being expressed by the people who you want to trust people with clipboards and, and um, lab coats mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's very easy to be swayed by that. Indoctrination and, at its finest. Yeah. yeah. And it's not just... Oh, we're all guilty of that. 
you know, if, if I go to, the, to, to a doctor and the doctor tells me that this is wrong with me, I just trust them absolutely. I don't, you know, I don't necessarily um, question what they're saying. Right. I don't feel that I've got the, got the um, skills or ability to do that. But in this case, it is my field of expertise, and I do feel that I have... I feel confident in calling people to explain what appears to be um, ridiculous. I should say that before... I mean, the, the final stages of the manuscript, so the manuscript has to be um, given to Patagonia in just a couple of weeks' time. Mm-hmm. And um, as part of tidying up the loose ends, um, I contacted the... Uh, people at the head of the Yellowstone Management um, Program in Yellowstone National Park mm-hmm. and explained what I was doing and pointed out that I was a passionate advocate of the preservation of native fish in natural environments. Right. And um, and they said, great, we're really interested in helping in any way that you're okay. doing this ball. So I said, great, I'll do an interview when I get to Nevada and, um, and would you like to have a list of questions first to see what we're on about so that you mm-hmm. can be armed? And they said, yes. So I sent them, I sent them a list of questions. They were really simple questions. It was like um, questions like, um, you know, like there are, there are records of lake trout being planted in um, Yellowstone National Park as far back as 1890, and they're really accurate contemporary records. There are records of... Um, Lake trout having been caught in the 1960s out of Yellowstone Lake, and they're really accurate. They're, I look at them and I think they're almost irrefutable. And so, the question is, why are these dismissed out of hand? Why do you say that these things, these events, never never occurred? Because you have to assume that there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Or you say, um, you know, what is what is the diet of a cutthroat trout? You're saying that you know of the Mackinac. You're saying that each lake trout eats 40 cutthroat trout. What is the actual diet? How many does each fish actually eat? Um, or, I don't know, a whole list of very, what I would think were simple questions. And the answer I got was, these are really complex questions. They're going to take a long, long time for us to work out the answers to these questions. Does that mean that it was actually going to take a long time for them to work it out? Or it was going to take a lot of approval through government to be able to I have to no answer? idea. But all, I, all I'm saying is that what I thought were simple questions turn out to be complex questions yeah. and they did um the the person who's the public face of this program did actually send me an email saying um you know i will get back to you and i will answer all these questions oh, i'm still waiting i don't think it's going to happen before one may um and i think the reason for that quite simply is that they don't know well greg the thing is is when i was doing my show yeah. every time i wanted to interview an, a government biologist i would have to submit my questions first and then they'd have to be approved by the government. And I would have a biologist look me in the eye and know full well that he was full of shit. But he had to answer it the way that he was told so he didn't have any sort of disciplinary action. Yeah. So you made reference to if a doctor tells you something, you're going to assume that yep. the doctor is the truth, right? Mm. But when the other doctor comes in, the original doctor might feel like his toes are being stepped on. Are you oh, finding yeah. that? Do you, well, do you no, think they have not really. Toes? I have to say, you know, I'm a passionate advocate of science. And so I don't think that any of the people I'm dealing with are being malicious. And I have to say that all the research is good. It's just interpretation of research. Um, if you are going to say, if you're going to public, be on the public record as saying that each Mackinac is eating 40 cutthroat trout, then you really need to be able to 
send me back to the paper, to the research that shows that. And you need to be able to say, if there are 500,000 Mackinaw and 75,000 cutthroat trout, and each Mackinaw is eating 40 cutthroat trout, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to explain to me why you still use that figure. Um, and if you can't, then I don't know. Maybe maybe you're wrong, and maybe there's an alternative. Maybe there's an alternative um, reason for the collapse, and there is. Right? And that's what your book's about. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting. I'd like to follow up with you and just stay in touch and see. Is there anything maybe. else that you want to add? No, not really. Um, just. I'm sure everybody who looks at this as a passionate fisherman is going to get out there and fish anyway, but hey, take some mates along. We need all the help we can get, all the advocacy we can get. Um, that whole idea about gee, my favourite waters are being overfished, it's the least of our concerns. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in again soon.